Lord, um, I'm just grateful to uh, just have a time of praise where there were songs that were songs of praise, uh, but they were songs that lift us up in our times of struggle, and I like the variety of that. Praise God for that. How many of you guys are happy that it's Friday night? Well, I guess some of you guys are working tomorrow, I guess. <laughs> that didn't sound very enthusiastic. Cool, cool, cool. Well, uh, first of all, I, I just wanted to thank the powers that be for um, allowing me to speak on our topic for tonight. Um, it's truly a privilege uh, that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. Um, I've been a little under the weather, so if I have a coughing spell while I'm up here, uh, don't be surprised, and I'll do my best not to <laughs> spread my cooties to you guys. If this is your first time joining us, uh, we've been going through a series on why we believe what we believe. Essentially, we've been going through our, our church statement of faith, and we've been answering and explaining why we have these beliefs. If you're curious, you can uh, look up what we believe on our website by navigating to what we believe. There you'll find our statement of beliefs, and in the uh, Article 18 of our statement of beliefs, we have specific things that we believe about the reality of civil government. Now, the topic that uh, we'll be looking at tonight is it's pretty straightforward, right? There's, there's nothing too confusing about it, and, and so I don't imagine that you'll have too many questions about the subject in and of itself. Yet, as the progressive agenda continues to influence the, the laws of our land, and as we continue to hear people question and uh, question the character and the, the competency of our civil authorities on the, on the news and in the public square, the implications of this topic will become more and more of a concern to us, or at least I believe it should. Now, if this subject doesn't concern you at all, let me just suggest to you why this should matter to you, at least a little bit. And it's pretty simple. The reality of civil government has implications for your life and for my life. And since you and I live in a society that's regulated under civil government, the implications of what we believe is not just a theoretical matter. It's not just something to think about. What we believe about civil government and the implications of that belief is a matter of, uh, it's, it's, it's a matter that's practical. It's a practical matter. And it's a practical matter for anyone who wants to live a life that is pleasing to God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight we'll be looking at why we believe what we believe in three parts. First, we'll be looking at why we, why we have certain beliefs about the nature of civil government. Secondly, we'll be looking at our responsibilities to civil government and, and why we believe we have these responsibilities. And then lastly, we'll be looking at why we believe we have exceptions to these responsibilities. But before we begin, uh, please pray with me. Our Father and our God, we thank you for all of the souls who are here tonight. You thought of all of us. We are your living, breathing concept art. You've put so much thought into each and every person here. And not only that, but you've given us everything, including your son. I pray that everyone here will listen for what your spirit would have to say to them. And God, please help me to be clear 
and concise. We ask this in the matchless name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Now, just to lay the foundation of where we're going for the rest of the night, I thought it would be best to to actually lay out what we believe about civil government. In Article 18 of our church's statement of faith, it reads, we believe that civil government is distinct from the church and is ordained of God, that all those in authority are to be prayed for, honored, and obeyed, except in those things contrary to the will of God, who is the only Lord. These are our beliefs. And many of these beliefs are derived from Paul's treatment on the topic in his letter to the Christians in Rome. The specific passage is what we read earlier, right? It's Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. So, For the purposes of explaining why we have these beliefs, this passage will be our primary text. Let's read it again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes is owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of God. This passage comes at the turning point of Paul's letter to to a group of Christians that he had not met yet. These Christians were residents of Rome, of course, a place that Paul longed to visit, hence the title Romans. When he learned that a sister named Phoebe was traveling up to the city, he took advantage of the opportunity and wrote out a full-orbed treatment of Christian doctrine. In this passage, Paul introduced himself and he expressed his intentions of visiting them. But obviously, the value of this letter is found in the fact that in it, Paul explains in systematic fashion the gospel of God. This letter is best understood in two halves. In chapters 1 to 11, Paul explained the truths of the gospel. In a nutshell, he explains how God has shown abundant mercies to the one who has faith in Jesus. In chapters 12 to 16, Paul goes on to give directives to the recipients of God's mercies. In these directives, and these directives are concerning how a person should order their lives. At the top of this half of the letter, Paul exhorts Christians to reciprocate to God by offering his or her life as a living, breathing sacrifice to God. And one of the ways that a Christian was to do this is explained in our passage tonight. Now, upon first observation, the first thing that we can glean from this text is that we are given beliefs here in this text about the nature of civil government. 
Paul said, let every person be subject to governing authorities, civil government. Who were these governing authorities? These governing authorities were ruling officials of the Roman Empire. This letter was written about 57 AD, give or take. And during this time, Rome was well established as the civil government of much of the known world. And Paul's recipients lived right in the Mecca of where this government operated from. Now, when we say civil government, we're essentially referring to an institution of authority that regulates the affairs of society. For us today, civil government is composed of individuals like prime ministers, our presidents, like Trump, state governors, city mayors, court judges, police officers, and yes, even security guards. But for Paul's recipients, Rome was the civil government. And what we read in the New Testament is that this was the government that Jesus lived under, and it was under this same government that the Christian church flourished. Now, this is not one of the most significant points of our discussion tonight, but it is something that we believe about the nature of civil government. And it's what we just cited a few minutes ago. We believe that civil government is distinct from the church. And this much is apparent in Paul's instructions to a Christian demographic. You could say that these individuals that Paul was addressing represented the church. And Paul was addressing these individuals in light of a separate, external institution of authority. Church members, institution of authority. Pretty clear, right? And so we don't want to belabor the point too much. But though civil government is separate and external, though it is distinct from the church, though this is true, that doesn't mean that God isn't involved in this sector of reality. And by the end of this session tonight, I'm, I'm hoping that that'll be fairly clear. All right, now going back to our passage, we can see that civil government is not only distinct from the church, but it is also ordained of God, ordained by God. And this is the rationale behind the instructions given in this passage. In respect to these civil authorities, Paul said, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. When Paul says that these authorities have been instituted by God, He's essentially saying that God has appointed these individuals to their particular office. God has assigned them to their particular position. And in this position, in this office, each person has been given a measure of authority from God. God is our ultimate authority. He is the only person who has the right to command obedience by virtue of his very nature. We have no higher authority than God himself. But what God has done is he has assigned particular roles of authority in human society. He has a, a, a appointed delegates to occupy authoritative roles. And these roles, and in these roles, they act sort of as vice lords. Three times in this passage, Paul refers to the governing authorities as servants or ministers of God. Now, when we usually hear these terms, we tend to associate them with a religious calling. It's usually associated with something like the clergy, right? But here we see that the Apostle Paul uses these terms in reference to domestic officials, it's used in reference to the governing authorities. And specifically, 
These terms are employed in reference to the Emperor Nero. And let's just say that Nero was, was not a good emperor. He was infamous. And he was no friend to the Christian community. But good or not, he occupied that particular position. A position, an authoritative position, as a minister of God. And by extension, the same could be said for the governing authorities of our day. Our president that we often chafe at and we like to make fun of. Our state governors that we vote for. Our local police officers that we often slow down for. These individuals are ministers of God as well. And as ministers of God, they have a particular purpose. In fact, we could say that they have a dual purpose. The first thing that we can glean from this text is that these ministers of God, the governing authorities, are put in their position to promote the welfare of society. At the beginning of verse 3, Paul reasons with his readers. He said, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. God's servant, the civil government, has been appointed for our good. They serve us. They are put there for our benefit, for the benefit of our lives. And this benefit will be realized through their order, the order that they establish. And this order is regulated through various laws. Road regulations contribute to societal order. I mean, imagine if there were no rules in the road, right? Imagine the traffic. Imagine the accidents. Welcome to the bay, right? Do you get what I'm saying, right? You can see how various laws bring about societal order. And this order is for our good. The laws that civil government establish doesn't just bring about order, but it also promotes the well-being of society by protecting life. That is to say, civil government has been, has been appointed by God to regulate society in such a way that each person could dwell in safety. But coupled with their purpose to serve our good is the purpose to restrain and punish, to restrain and punish evil, to restrain and punish evildoers. In verse 2 of our passage, Paul said, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And in the latter half of verse 4, he said, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The Apostle Paul tells us that civil authorities have been given the authority to punish immoral conduct. As servants of God, in their particular position, civil government acts as an instrument of God's wrath. This is why certain govern, governing authorities carry weapons. Now, I quickly want to emphasize the fact that God gives civil government this authority to punish immoral behavior. That is to say, it is for actual wrongdoing, actual crimes. 
This authority should not be taken as a prerogative to express personal vendettas. It should not be used as a license to exterminate others based on some pre-existing prejudice. Such an abuse would be a gross misuse of God-given authority. And such a top-down abuse has always been condemned by God. From the Old to the New Testament, such people are not just abusing their authority, but they are also misrepresenting what God has given them. Abusive authority makes all authority look bad. It makes all authority seem like a necessary evil. And since all authority comes from God, it ultimately leads people to question the morality of God. Why? Why did God give this person authority? And so governors who abuse their God-given authority will receive their due punishment. But understand this much. Civil government has this authority. They have the authority to check foul behavior. And listen, if an individual bucks against the God-given authority that these officials have and lose their life in the process, then know this, based on the authority of this text, if that person dies in lawless pursuits, God approves of their death. And they may have a whole community on their side. They may have the media of the whole nation on their side. They may have campaigns built around their lawless martyrdom. But God understands the intentions of the heart. And if an individual loses their life due to lawless behavior, they don't just have the law against them. They also have God against them. On this topic, <laughs> there's been a lot of issues about law enforcement these days and and I'm not going to stand up here and try to adjudicate all the mess that's going on between law enforcement and young black youth. That's not my jurisdiction. And I don't even know all the facts anyway. But God knows. God knows the intentions. God knows the heart. And he sees everything. They say justice is blind, but not the judge of all the earth. He sees it all. And trust me, God ain't stingy with justice. He'll make sure that everybody gets it. And this is comfort for the bereaved. This is comfort for also for the individual who acts according to the highest principle that they have. But it's terror for anyone who thinks they can use their God-given authority to get away with murder. This is what we believe about civil government. It's a distinct institution of authority that has been ordained by God. And as such, they have the authority to promote the welfare of society, and to restrain and punish evil. And we believe this based on the description given in God's authoritative word. Okay, moving on. We also believe that we have responsibilities to civil government. And that general responsibility uh, has been borne out already, right? It is our responsibility to obey civil government. Paul begins this passage with this very exhortation. 
let every person be subject to governing authorities. This command was for every person. It wasn't just for the Christians that Paul spoke to, but it also applied to the non-Christians in their society. It was for every person. It wasn't just for the people of that time, but it also applies to every person in any time, regardless of what time period we're in. It applies to them. It applies to us. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. When Paul says that we are to be subject, he has the idea of putting oneself underneath another's authority. It is what a servant was to volitionally do in respect to his or her master. It is what a child was to rightly do in respect to his or her parents. It is what a wife is to willingly do in respect to her husband. It is the responsibility of every Christian in respect to civil authorities. Because in our subjection to civil authority, we are being subject to God. And this subjection, and in this subjection, we live in compliance. We obey their commands. And we, don't, and we do this not simply to avoid consequences or reprisal. But as Paul said in verse 5 of our passage, we do this because our Christian conscience tells us that it's right. We obey for the sake of conscience. Now, obviously, this is not a popular message today. Today, challenging authority is a virtue signal. Challenging authority is somehow seen as a good thing. But understand this. That is not the Christian way. That is not Christ-like. We have to remember that our master continued in subjection to earthly parents. We got to remember that our master was when he was questioned about the Roman tax law, he didn't speak out against it or counsel others to avoid it. You know the story. He commanded compliance in that famous response, give on to Caesar what is Caesar's. And it was he who said, no servant is greater than his master. But a question we got to ask is, is that true of you? Are we following Jesus' steps? Are we following in his example? Or are we taking shortcuts? Like I said, not a popular message, but newsflash. That's discipleship. Obedience. We also have a responsibility to pray for civil, civil authorities. For this, we'll have to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. There the apostle said, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and, and all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Here we have our exhortation and our explanation. Exhortation, make supplications, pray intercede, give thanks for all people, specifically for civil authorities. Explanation, 
Why do we do this? Because such people govern the affairs of society. And with God's help, they will govern society in such a way that we will be able to have peaceful, quiet, godly lives. Today, so many of us spend so much time railing against the current administration. We blog, we tweet, but how often do we pray? Do we really care about what's going on in the world? Or are we just interested in voicing our opinions? Here's a tip. If we want to see change in the world, if you want to see positive progress in our nation, if you really want to see the government fulfill their intended calling, then show God that you believe in him and pray. Pray. Lastly, we have the responsibility to honor civil authorities. And this takes us back to our main passage. In verse 7, Paul commands this in respect to civil authorities. Pay all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. But in this generation, what does honor mean to us? We're essentially asking the same question that Pilate asked about truth. What is honor? We live in a country of free speech, right? We live in a country where, when, uh, where, where people um, are way too quick to air their opinions, even if it has no intellectual value. We could say whatever we want about the government. We sing along with NWA, right, about the cops. We plaster content, disrespectful content on our vehicles and post obscene things on the internet. And what gets me is this comes from Christians sometimes. And we, we do this because we just want everyone to know what we think as if our thoughts are really all that important. And honor has died a thousand deaths in our society. And unfortunately, even in the church. But once again, that's not the Christian way. When Paul tells us to pay honor, we're essentially being told to hold governing authorities with a level of respect He's not saying that we have to like everything about them. He's not saying that we have to approve of everything that they do. But we should respect them because they're in a position of honor. There's a saying that goes, don't salute the man, salute the suit. And essentially what that means is that we respect the rank of their position even though we may not particularly like the person in the position. You guys remember when David was on the run from King Saul? Right? Saul was hunting for David's life, and, and he took his army and pursued David into the wilderness. And during this time, there was an incident where David caught Saul in a very vulnerable position. Paul was, uh, or I'm sorry, Saul he was using the restroom, so to speak, had his uh, trousers down at his ankles, and he was completely off guard. And at this point, David could have said, Aha! Got you, homie! <laughs> it could have just stuck it to him. Could have totally killed him. He could have put an end to that pursuit once and for all. But we read that David refrained. And we learn that he refrained not because he loved 
saw the person so much. But because he respected Paul's anointed position as the first king of Israel. And even when Saul was killed years later, <laughs> David mourned for him. A man who was trying to, trying to end his life. David acted on higher principles, biblical principles. And as followers of the son of David, Jesus Christ, should we expect anything less of ourselves? Honor. This is what we believe about civil government. It is a distinct institution of authority that has been ordained by God. And as such, we have, they have the authority to promote the welfare of society and to restrain and punish evil. We also believe that it is our responsibility to obey, pray, and honor those in these positions of authority. And we believe this based on the description and the commands given in God's authoritative word. Okay, lastly, we believe that while we have responsibilities to civil government, there are also exceptions to this rule. And I know that uh, some of us are just waiting for me to get here, right? As soon as I start talking about governing authorities, we're like, ah, what about this, you know? What about A, B, and C, right? Well, we're here now, right? But we need to understand the general truth about civil government before we can start talking about exceptions. Because nine times out of 10, there are no exceptions. We need to render obedience. We need to render respect. And we need to pray. For the most part, we don't run into situations that actually qualify as an exception. And as Christians, we shouldn't necessarily be looking for loopholes. As followers of Christ, we should be eager to obey the authorities that God has put in place. And that's hard stuff. But nevertheless, there are situations that do qualify as an exception. Because fallen individuals occupy the positions of governing authorities there may be times when civil government may require disobedience to the will of God. In such times, Scripture gives us a principle to follow, and it is this. There are times when obedience to the highest authority will require disobedience to the lower authorities. There are times where Obedience to our highest authority, God, will require disobedience to the lower authorities. As I said earlier, God is our highest authority. We have no authority higher than him. There is no one else to answer to above him. The buck stops with God. And as I said earlier, he has delegated authority to members of civil government. And though these people have authority from God... They are nevertheless lower authorities. And due to sin, there will be times when these two authorities are in conflict. There will be times when lower authorities will venture beyond the parameters of their position. And this is when we can no longer obey them with a good conscience. Civil governors may require obedience to cruel intentions. If you guys remember, uh, the book of Exodus begins with an edict of Pharaoh. He saw that the Hebrews were becoming great in number and he felt threatened by them. So he instituted a law that all newborn males who are Hebrew should be killed upon birth. And in this the Pharaoh made infanticide a federal 
mandate. He ordered the slaughter of innocent children. And any government that permits such a gross act is guilty of assaulting the very image of God. Because every person, whether they are born well or disfigured, whether they are born Hebrew or Egyptian, whether they are born male or female, whether they are wanted or not, all these little ones bear the very image of God. And to do violence to them, especially when they are so vulnerable and needy, is such unmitigated hatred and evil. It is hatred and evil and violence against the very image of God. And we read of two Hebrew midwives who, who seem to have the same conviction. They were handed the edict of Pharaoh, but apparently they couldn't violate their conscience. And we read that they didn't obey the edict. They let the Hebrew boys live. And even though Pharaoh was the big macho bravado on the scene, we don't even get his name. God doesn't mention his name. His name is not all that important. But what we do get is the names of the two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, women who did what was right in the eyes of God. And if you're in doubt about that, we read that after they did these things, God dealt well with them as a result. In the same way, we cannot violate our conscience. This is an example of when we must obey the standards of the highest authority over and against the lower authorities. In addition, civil governors may require us to violate our convictions. Now, when I say conviction, I'm not talking about personal convictions. Some of us think that the fast lane means you can drive as fast as you want, right? That's a personal conviction. But that's not what I'm talking about. When I say convictions, I'm talking about biblical convictions. I'm talking about deeply held beliefs based on clear commands and realities spelled out in Scripture. I'm talking about the clear will of God as he has revealed it in the sacred pages of your Bibles. These are the convictions that I'm talking about. And it's these convictions that civil governors may require us to violate. For Daniel's three friends, it was idolatry. They were required by federal mandate to worship a national monument if you guys remember that story. This is the dilemma that we read about in Daniel chapter three. And when these three Hebrew boys were brought into the king's presence and they were told to bow down to this idol, they said in effect, no can do, sir. No can do. When threatened with the prospect of a fiery death, this is what they said. O Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king at that time, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Essentially, they were saying, it's whatever. We know what our God has commanded us, and we're not going to budge on that. <laughs> These guys didn't just have sound theology. They had conviction that strengthened their backs. This was a hill that they were willing to die on. And for them, it was whatever. Whatever the outcome, whatever the cost. They were going to stand on their convictions. 
That's backbone. And for us, our government may not force us to bow down and worship the Lincoln Memorial. They may not force us to build a wall or to put a MAGA hat on. They may not force us to worship the American flag. But I'll tell you what, they may require homosexual membership in the church. They may require for your kids to learn and accept gender fluidity, with or without your consent, by the way. Healthcare professionals, they they may require you to perform abortions. And if the child survives that process, they may require you to withhold life support and to let the child wither and die. They may require you, health professionals, to euthanize an older patron. They may require you to perform same-sex surgeries. And parents, they may require you to pay for it. Church, they may require us to stop preaching the very truths that we stand for. And when these winds come blowing against the walls of the church... When those pressures start closing in on us at work, when those teachings start influencing the members of our household, we must stand firm. We must obey the highest authority, even if it means that we disobey the legislation of the lower authorities. Lastly, civil government may require us to abandon our mission. And this is something I alluded to before. But specifically, the civil governors may outlaw gospel ministry altogether. They may prohibit us from proclaiming the gospel in the public square. Peter and the rest of the apostles faced this similar situation. In Acts chapter 5, the the gospel ministry was booming. They had folks getting healed and clean. Church members were coming into the neighborhood. It was was increasing, and, and demons were getting pushed out. It was like a spiritual gentrification in Jerusalem. And most of us are familiar with the story, right? The religious authorities caught wind of what was going on, and they got jealous. They were like, yo, this... It's our turf, Holmes. What you doing? Not really, but <laughs> we read that the gospel, the gospel message challenged their authority. It incriminated them, in fact. Right? And they didn't want these guys going around proclaiming this message. And so what we read is that they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. And we know the story, right? The Lord overrides their authority. He miraculously brought them out of the prison cell. And what we're told is that they were commanded to go and stand in the temple, in the public square, and speak to the people all the words of this life. When lower authorities conflict with the highest authority, They always lose. And this is one of the main themes that we find, not only in the book of Acts, but throughout church history. The apostles said it well in verse 29 of this chapter. If civil authorities require us to obey cruel intentions, if they require us to violate our convictions, if they require us to abandon our mission, We as the people of God, we as followers of Jesus Christ, must obey God rather than men. Now understand what I'm saying. At the end of the day, it's all about obedience to authority. Our subjection to governing authorities is is really obedience to God's authority, right? That's who our charge comes from. 
and that's who their authority comes from. But if in obeying God, if that means disobedience to civil authorities, then technically it's still a matter of obedience to God. Amen? See, we're not prescribing rebellion, and we're not cherry-picking which laws we want to obey and which ones we want to neglect. It's all about obedience, and our obedience in all things must be to the highest authority. This is what we believe about civil government. It is a distinct institution of authority that has been ordained by God. And as such, they have the authority to promote the welfare of society and to restrain and punish evil. We also believe that it is our responsibility to obey, pray, and honor those in these positions of authority. In addition, we also believe that there are exceptions to our responsibilities when civil authorities require disobedience to the will of God. And we believe this based on the description, the commands, and the principles given in God's authoritative word. God bless you. Thank you so much for your time and your attention. Please join me in a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, uh, we thank you for your common grace that you've exercised through civil government. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us to grow in Christ-likeness in this regard. We also just pray that you would help our civil government to fulfill your sovereign calling for them, your intentions that you have for them in their positions, that we might live quiet, godly lives. Lord, uh, just pray that your spirit will have taken what has been said tonight and minister to all who, um, all who are here. Thank you, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen.